Orthobiologics Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Turner, MD, RMSK. This is brought to you by Georgia Bone and Joint. We're going to depart from what is otherwise considered our usual programming and subject matter to talk about something that is obviously on the forefront of everyone's minds worldwide right now. Specifically, that is the recent coronavirus disease outbreak. So I want to discuss something relative to the practice of biologics and cellular medicine that may actually prove to be our greatest strategy in combating this disease, at least for the time being, and explain the rationale for it and some of the history of it. I want to go ahead and define a few terms, and that is that officially the type of virus that we are talking about is labeled SARS-CoV-2, which is the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. And the name for the pneumonia that's caused by this virus has actually been dubbed the Coronavirus Disease 2019, which is why most of the time, if you're reading articles or you're looking around or talking to people or reading things from the internet, the term you see is COVID-19, but the virus itself is actually SARS-CoV-2. Now, what happens when you get a virus is once someone has been infected, there is a load of this virus in the blood, and we call that viremia when that happens. And it peaks in the first week of infection in most viral illnesses, not all, but most. And then most people will develop an immune response within a 10 to 14 day period thereafter. And as you know, that's been a lot of the reason that the public health community and the governments have advocated for the social distancing and the washing of hands to try and prevent infection and spread of this virus because of that 10 to 14 day period. So there's obviously people walking around that have not been tested that have picked up coronavirus from someone else and they don't know it yet. And then later on they show symptoms. So if we can prevent people from bumping into each other during that infected asymptomatic period, that's going to be critical. So the question then becomes is if the viral load actually peaks in the first week or so of infection, is that the most critical time that we need to intervene to keep people from having severe disease? And we're going to delve into that in a lot more detail as we go on. So the concept that I'm going to introduce today is something referred to convalescent serum. And there's another word for it, and it's been done for a long, long time, and that's called passive antibody therapy. Now, passive antibody therapy is something that's been done for decades because for a long time it was the, the only way we could treat certain diseases before we developed the use of antimicrobials in the 1940s. So what that basically means is if we could take some type of blood or antibody or plasma that comes from a survivor of a certain disease, and we could pass that in a safe way to someone else who either has been infected and doesn't have the disease yet, but they're at risk for getting very, very sick, or maybe even somebody who's moderately sick but not on the verge of death. You know, could we somehow protect those people or, or, or keep them from, unfortunately, developing a severe case to require intensive care, and, and maybe even death. So when we give somebody passive antibodies, we give them a protection that lasts for weeks to months. And we do have to be sure that we're giving them enough antibodies. So that's a critical measure. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But basically, 
people who get infected for about four to eight weeks after that infection, their blood is filled with lots of antibodies. So the body produces these antibodies in a response, and it's a way of giving people the immunity and helping protect against reinfection and and keeping the virus from causing the worst effects that it seems to in the severely ill. Now, we have studies in animals that shows, in mice in particular, that if you give antibodies to an infected mouse during this period of time when the viral load is in the blood, you can actually reduce the amount of that virus in the blood by sometimes up to tenfold, even a hundredfold. And the reason that's important is because what we find is that that can be the difference between life and death. And even though we give people antibodies, that protective effect does decrease over time. And so there are a couple examples in which we actually are still using passive antibody therapy currently. So we use it to prevent RSV in infants, which is a a dangerous respiratory illness that can put infants in intensive care and put them at risk for pulmonary or respiratory failure. We also use it for hepatitis B and we use it for rabies. So there are modern examples of why we use this. And the question becomes is what reason would we have not to do it? And so there are risks associated with this passive antibody therapy. So there's a risk that you could give someone an infection. There's a risk they could have a reaction to the transfusion and get a very, very dangerous uh, disease called serum sickness. There's even a risk when you give people transfusions that you can injure the lungs themselves and that transfusion-associated lung injury can be very dangerous for someone whose lungs are already not operating at the highest capacity. And then there's a theoretical question of something we call ADE, which means antibody-dependent enhancement. And so the notion would be is if we use antibodies to help protect someone from a viral strain and then the virus somehow mutates and becomes a more dangerous strain, do we actually accelerate the risk at which someone could be hurt or injured by giving them this therapy? And so that would be an example of why we wouldn't. And so the the real question for us becomes then when do the benefits outweigh the risk? Because we have huge advantages with convalescent serum. I mean, we can harvest it immediately. So if we have a donor or someone who's survived and the antibodies are high in their blood, we, we get immediate access to it. It is relatively safe because many of the risks that I discussed with infection and serum sickness, I mean, those risks are almost zero when you use modern blood banking techniques. It's certainly a lot cheaper than drugs, and it can be used in any country. And we're not talking about using convalescent serum in medicine for the rest of history or for the rest of the pandemic of coronavirus. I mean, this is often seen as the best stopgap kind of measure that we have because really vaccine production is going to take months and months and months, and and so will drug development as well. And there have been a couple drugs that people have tried to use with seemingly not huge amounts of success, and there's debate about whether they're being given at the right time or in the right doses, but it seems like there's not a dramatic protective effect in the drugs that have been used so far. So the question then becomes is if you're going to use convalescent serum, who do you use it for? And the relevant kind of crowd, obviously, for myself and and for other physicians who are currently 
working in the healthcare system is nurses and doctors and other first responders, because what we've seen is the doctors and the nurses and, and responders who are taking care of these patients in the first place, if they become symptomatic or they test positive and they get put on a 14-day quarantine, well, who's going to keep the health system going? You know, and the other question also really hits home for us because my wife works as a hospitalist in internal medicine, so she very much will be exposed to these patients when she starts back at work next week. And the question is, even if we get it and we're okay, but we pass it to, you know, a grandparent or another member of the family who is at serious risk, we don't want to be the cause of them going to the hospital and, and maybe even dying. So this becomes an emotional decision for some of the people on the front lines because we made a choice years ago. When we went into medicine, we made a choice to protect people who are very sick and sometimes at great risk to ourselves. So it's not as if we have a choice like, well, maybe we won't go into work today because we could get sick. But the question becomes is if I'm going into work and I know I'm taking the risk, can I do so in a way that at least will protect the rest of my family or, or, or at least protect the other people that I work with, that I come in contact with to not put them at risk too? So why did convalescent serum and passive antibody therapy all of the sudden come into the main sphere? Well, the reason that it came into the main sphere was that there was an infectious disease doctor in China by the name of Lang Yu. And at his university school of medicine, Zijiang, he treated 13 of the critically ill people with convalescent serum. So they took plasma from donors who had been infected with coronavirus. And these donors who survived were able to pass on their plasma to these 13 critically ill. And what they noticed in these patients is that their viral loads plummeted, but they didn't necessarily get better. In fact, their condition worsened. And so that raised a question. So they treated all these people after they'd been infected with the disease for over two weeks. There is a, a real, a small amount of evidence that we can drop the load of this virus by using convalescent serum, but when do we have to do it? And perhaps it's doing it early enough to make a big difference is what we need to look for. We have examples throughout history of the way that convalescent serum has contributed to saving lives. So it started all the way as far back as the 1890s and then throughout the early 20th century in the treatment of polio and measles and mumps a lot before there were vaccines or, or other ways to, to fight these diseases. And probably the biggest example early on was 1918. There was a huge H1N1 outbreak and over 1,700 cases of people were treated. Now, obviously, the kind of research and the rigorous way of controlling data that was done back in 1918 is not the same standard that it's done today. But if you go back and you look at the case data and you look at some meta-analyses that were done, it actually does show that there was lower mortality then. So how about some more modern examples? Well, in 2003, there was a SARS-CoV-1 outbreak. So this is actually another coronavirus that was treated early on with some success with convalescent therapy. And in fact, if you look from numbers in, in 2002 and 2003, there were 80 people that were treated in Hong Kong who were infected with SARS-CoV-1, and they were treated before day 14 as opposed to the China study. And what it showed is they had higher discharge rates from the hospital. So these people were surviving or were going home. 
There were more recent examples still in a 2009 influenza uh, H1N1 outbreak that showed a big reduction in relative risk of mortality. And then some other diseases treated, including Ebola in West Africa, so much so that the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, actually came out in 2014 and recommended the use of convalescent serum for patients who'd been infected. And they did that in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They had a very small case size there, and it wasn't well controlled, but it did seem to help people. They treated uh, people in Sierra Leone and in Guinea in 2015 as well. And those data were inconclusive, but you have to wonder whether or not that data had to do with the fact that we weren't measuring antibody titers before those were being done. Finally, there was another huge disease outbreak called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, in 2015, in which this was also done. So there are plenty of modern examples with respiratory viruses in which we have data to support the use of this approach. The question then becomes is, what do we have to do in order to deploy a strategy like this around the United States? Well, you need basically six big components. So number one is you need donors. So we've got to have people who have had coronavirus, who survived it, and they've survived it long enough to build up antibodies and who are also willing to step up and donate. We've got to have blood banks so that we can harvest the plasma and do it in a way that is safe and prevents further transmission of disease if we're going to transfuse other people. We have to have people who can perform blood and virus assays, meaning the tests that it takes to diagnose coronavirus and also measure the load of the virus in the blood. We have to have lab support for people to figure out whether or not antibodies are high enough. And then we have to develop protocols. So the question is, do we need a protocol for prophylaxis and do we need a protocol for treatment? Because there's plenty of people being exposed, especially people who are treating coronavirus, but that's different from people who have contracted the virus and now become sick. So do we need a different dosing or a different way of administering that plasma based on that time frame? And then we need regulatory expertise. And so we'll get into a little more discussion of what's going on with the FDA in just a minute. Now, there is one huge pharmaceutical company, Takeda, and they are actually working on generating highly purified forms of very high antibody titers, but this is going to take months before it's able to be effective. And so right now, we're looking for other strategies. Recently, you may have seen that the United States has now passed China as the number of cases of coronavirus worldwide. And the epicenter for us is in New York City where the goal in a lot of ways has become keeping people out of intensive care. Because if we can either prevent transmission or if we can keep the already taxed system from having to see and care for even more people with super advanced care, it's a win for everybody. For that reason, in my opinion, is why the governor, Andrew Cuomo, on March 23rd came out and announced that he intended to allow the use of convalescent serum since there have been more than 25,000 infections and over 200 deaths in New York alone. And if you look at that, you know, where disease outbreak is the worst, you often see that the best people rise to the challenge. And if you look no further than Mount Sinai, one of their chiefs of medical officers and CEOs, Dr. Reich, He is looking at a treatment of this disease 
and where it takes its best place. He's looking at whether convalescent serum should be used for moderate forms of the disease and when people have trouble breathing, but not in sort of the end-stage advanced patient who's already on a ventilator in the ICU. And it makes sense that Mount Sinai would be the place to roll it out since they were actually the first to develop a test that could detect antibodies in recovering patients here in the United States. But it doesn't just start in the hospitals, it also starts in the blood center. The chief medical officer of New York Blood Center, Dr. Bruce Sikace, he is willing to collect, test, and distribute this plasma. And he knows that the the convalescent serum is not going to be able to reach the entire country just from New York. And so because of that, he's really trying to partner with other blood centers that they network with in New England and Delaware and the Midwest as well. And so they have kind of looked at some of the data from prior coronavirus infections and also from China and, and have come basically to the inclusion that we expect that the people who recover are those who have very high titers of antibodies. And so the question becomes is, what is this process like? I mean, what if you feel that it's your duty as a citizen, as a, a, a person, as a human, as a family member to, to donate your, your plasma if you, in fact, get infected and survive? Well, apheresis is not a painful or a difficult process. It takes about one to one and a half hours. And if you go in, they basically put two IVs, so one in either arm, and your blood goes into the apheresis machine. And at that point, it filters out the plasma from the red blood cells and the white blood cells. And then it keeps the plasma and it puts the red and the white blood cells back into the vein. So we don't actually take people's blood like we would when you do a blood donation because it puts the blood back. It really just takes the plasma out. Now, a person who goes to do that and to donate that kind of plasma will actually be able to treat three patients. So with one donation, three other people will need it to be treated. And the question then becomes is, do you use that immediately and donate it or do you freeze it? Because you can do either and you simply just thaw it back out when you reuse it and then you give it to whoever needs it. And the other thing to note is that it does not endanger a person to donate their plasma. So it's done in a sterile fashion and it doesn't make them any more likely to succumb to the disease or to have a relapse. So, you know, maybe 20% of the antibodies in the blood will be filtered out when they harvest it. For an individual who's already been sick and now recovered, their blood will have replaced those antibodies within several days. So it's not, not incredibly risky. Now, the question becomes is, you know, if this is the process to donate, then where, where are people going to be able to get this therapy? And there's a couple places in the United States that so far seem to be really leading the charge. And Hopkins and Albert Einstein, Washington University in St. Louis, Mayo and Rochester, Minnesota, and of course, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, part of the reasons that a couple of these other places have been so far on the forefront is that there's a couple people who really strongly advocated for this approach in the beginning. One is Arturo Casadevald, who is an immunologist at John Hopkins, and you may be familiar with his name already. He's been advocating for this in scientific and peer-reviewed journals since January of 2020, when news of the coronavirus pandemic was really becoming substantial. Then he actually helped contribute to an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal in February, which he claims is because he knew that 
people would pay much more attention to that than they would if they were just reading scientific journals. He has a a peer and a colleague who's at Albert Einstein, who also kind of works in molecular biology and immunology, Dr. Porofsky. And so they have really been at the forefront of helping push this mission. And because they've helped push this mission, the FDA has really come out with a streamlined process for how we can make people eligible for treatment like this. And obviously, the FDA is committed to making sure that people get treatments that are safe and treatments that are effective. And so the question is, is if we don't have an abundance of data yet for SARS-CoV-2 or for for COVID-19, then we need to collect that data. And so they have put down criteria of who strictly can receive convalescent plasma and who can donate it. And eligible donors are defined in the following ways. They can only be donators of convalescent serum from someone who has a documented lab test that proved that they had coronavirus and now have had complete resolution over a 14-day period. They will then have to have a negative test either by the no-swab method or by the blood method that shows that they are no longer infected. And ideally, the FDA is looking for people with antibody titers that are higher than 1 in 320. And that's a ratio, but it's not like a person on the street is ever going to know what that is. I think the question is, is if you know you've had coronavirus and then you have survived it, you could at least, you know, try and see if you're eligible to donate. For people who are going to receive it, the FDA has declared that you're eligible to receive a transfusion of convalescent plasma if you are having dyspnea, which is a medical term, which basically means shortness of breath and an uncomfortable feeling of breathing or air hunger, some people call it. If your respiratory rate, so the number of times you're breathing in a minute is greater than 30, which means you're breathing fast, or if your oxygen saturation, which is kind of a measure of how much oxygen you have in the blood is less than 93%. And that can be figured out relatively easily by putting a monitor on a finger and that infrared, that light will will be able to help tell whether or not the oxygen saturation is high or low. And finally, if there are greater than 50% lung infiltration on a chest x-ray, so a simple chest x-ray will show whether someone is a candidate for this. And of course, they're making you know, lastly, additionally, cases available for life-threatening illness. But as we've talked about from some of the prior evidence in the podcast, that may not be the best use case. The best use case may be that either that prevention in the early stages to people who we know are exposed, and then also for people who have sort of that moderate disease, especially if they're early on in that infection cycle. So there are trials going on now in the United States. And the three trials are looking at three different uses. And one is the early stage to prevent people from advancing to that critical level, that critical level where they're intubated or they're having a machine, you know, in a breathing tube in their lungs that is helping them survive. Then there is a second trial that is being done currently for severe cases, which are the cases that people are already in that period of having to have support to breathe. And then finally, that third trial for preventative use in those who are exposed. 
we're grateful, obviously, for the FDA's cooperation and for the cooperation of the government and, and for those who see that, you know, this is a clearly a national health priority in the United States. And, you know, people have argued that we need to be better about how much hand washing and social distancing and limiting large gatherings. And some states have really done it uh, better than others have. And, you know, because of that, we have varying levels. But as we're starting to increase the capacity at which we test here in the United States, we're going to see higher and higher numbers of cases that people had transmitted and gotten the disease, but maybe were asymptomatic or, or just are starting to get symptomatic now that they've been infected. So if you listen to this podcast and you happen to be someone who was infected with coronavirus and now have made it through that 14-day period, or if you know someone else who has, or if you're just a concerned family member or someone who wants to advocate and to help us find a powerful way to help protect our citizens, especially our vulnerable citizens, in a critical time in human history, please, please pass this podcast on if you have questions about convalescent plasma or where to get it or how to donate it or what you can do, we'll leave information linked on this podcast to my email and Facebook page as well. Because until a vaccine or a drug is tested that actually shows we can reverse this disease, then the most powerful things we can do are prevent it, support it, and then possibly with a old tried and true mechanism that needs to be applied with some good people and some good science to help the people who need to be protected to keep taking care of the sick people in our country. So thanks for your time and for listening today. Again, a little bit of an atypical episode, but thanks for joining us on the podcast about convalescent serum uh, here on the Orthobiologics Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Trevor Turner, MD, RMSK, brought to you by Georgia Bone and Joint. Let us know if you need help. We're seeing people with telemedicine, and we're also delivering their physical therapy that way as well for those of you who are sheltering in place and trying to stay home.